Welcome to the Professor Forever, the Professor Forever here. So someone I know just died, I think. I was told by my sister that they were in the last hour or perhaps hours of their life, maybe 90 minutes ago. I am hoping that he has transitioned. It didn't seem like a comfortable death to me. Blood was leaking into his lungs. I hope, beyond hope, that he was unconscious, that the hospital put him in a state where he could feel nothing. I didn't know John very well. We were acquaintances. He was brought into my life through marriage. Not my marriage. But he was a good person. And when I met him in 1991... He was nice to me. I was at a strange place in my life. I had relocated and I was living with my sister. And those were not the best of accommodations for different reasons. Although being around my sister, Bonnie, is one of the best places I can be. But in 91, it was kind of complicated. And my mother had recently died. And so both of us were grieving that. And I met John. And I want to thank his spirit. I feel like I maybe did thank John the person in real life, whatever that may be. But now, as my belief system allows me to think, he is or will soon be in a place where all questions that humans have are answered. So he knows I feel this way. Thank you, John the Spirit, for introducing me 
to Susie and the Banshees, to Public Image, and John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, and Big Audio Dynamite, and Skinny Puppy, and Ministry, and... Dinosaur Jr. All of the concerts that you took me to in 91 and 92. It was a wonderful way for me to get to know Chicago better. Because I lived in the suburbs of Chicago that year. But I would take the train in and meet John and he would treat me to these wonderful concerts. He was an avid, avid concert goer and people at the metro and other places in Chicago that are noteworthy in terms of concerts and rock bands got to know John too and some of the bands did too thank you John the Spirit for showing me the leather jacket that Joey Ramone gave you that had his signature in it. That was pretty cool. I think John introduced me to the Ramones too. You may stop by John the Spirit if it moves you. But thank you for all you did for me. And if I may be so bold, thank you for being a good person to everyone who experienced you on this earth. So I said that I don't like fall. And I listed many of the reasons why I don't like fall. This was two episodes ago. I talked about all the breakups that I had in the fall. It still stands true to me that I do not like fall. But I have to make an amendment to that. I love Halloween. And those of you who know me know that I do. And every year, I used to do this on my own, and now I do it with my partner. We watch a horror movie every night in October, 31 of them. And I have begun that process. So I have watched three thus far this year. And I think what I'm going to do is wait until next week when I have more to chew on to talk about that. But I did feel like I need to make needed to make that amendment. What I would really like is for fall or Halloween to be in the summer or the spring. Is there anybody out there that could take care of that for me? Ha <laughs> Can you move Halloween into the summer, please? I was thinking yesterday in my moments of gratitude about things that I can do 
that other people can't do. Everybody has things that they know how to do that other people don't know how to do. I used to stress this to my students in the classroom. Every single person has something unique that they can teach to others. Well, maybe not teach, but you can share the information about something that you do that is unique, at least in terms of the groups that I'm talking about. So that is unique to the other members in the classroom. And I think I'm going to make this an ongoing section of the podcast. Things I can do that others can't do. And I'm sure I'll probably come up also with things I can't do that I know others can do and wish I could. But right now, I'm in the gratitude portion of the section, things I can do. Today, I'd like to tell you about panning for gold. I have been panning for gold in the world and through pay dirt that you get through the mail for years. And when you first start panning for gold, and I mean with an actual panning system, with a pan, right, that you see, you think of old prospectors and they have a pan, right? Most of the pans that you see in movies don't have riffles, and you don't really need riffles, but it's really good for beginning panners to have riffles. And I still use a set that has riffles. I feel like I don't need them anymore, but I still do use them. So I know where to get this pay dirt. I have done a lot of research with different mining operations that send pay dirt through the mail to people. And I have watched a lot of YouTube reviews of pay dirt that comes through the mail. You don't make a lot of money by panning dirt that you get through the mail. I have to make that clear. But it's about having a hobby that you enjoy, right? Do you make a lot of money when you sit down and make your models? Probably not. And you can make some money from panning gold. You could get a good company that gives you pay dirt, that gives you a good ROI, return on investment. Here are some tips about panning for gold. And you can do it in a bucket in your backyard. Don't make your panning bucket too full with dirt. So, I mean, the bucket you're going to stick in the water. You need a bucket of water and the, the pan that you put your pay dirt in. Don't fill it up too much. But all of the dirt must get wet. And it seems like if you took a bucket or a pan of dirt and you submerge, 
submerged it into water that all of it would get wet. But it doesn't. There is some colloidal process that happens with pay dirt. And so the top gets wet, the bottom gets wet, and the middle stays kind of dry. So you have to really be sure and mix up. And this is why people agitate, right? You see them shaking a pan back and forth before they start dumping the water out. They're agitating the dirt and trying to get that water underneath everything. So the less dirt you have in your pan, the better off. But you can also mix it up with your hand and or the end of a uh, tweezer. I use tweezers for little pickers, pulling them out of the dirt in my pan. You could use the other end to mix up the dirt with water. The water in a bucket, the water you're going to submerge pay dirt in, can work better for you if you put jet dry that finishing liquid for dishwashers into the water. Not only does it clean the dirt, but it breaks up the surface tension of the water so that it can get under each little morsel of dirt better. I have learned over the years that you should look at your dirt when it's sitting in a pan when it's dry and after it's washed in different slants of light. Sometimes the best washed dirt will hide a piece of gold in a certain slant of light. Ah, Emily, there's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. I love that poem. Anyway, should get to that another time, perhaps winter. Um, but these little nuggets, these little flakes of gold, which are billions of years old, by the way, another moment of gratitude. You're looking at something that's been under the ground for billions of years. Wow. Um, it some of it, the way that it's crenellated. You have to see it in different slants of light in order to catch the light bouncing off one of its edges sometimes. So it's always good to look at it at different times of the day. Also, if you want to start doing this, something that you should know is getting a good magnet and running it over pay dirt is very helpful. It removes magnetic black sand from your panning material. Then I just use something to scrape that black sand off the magnet and put that in a container. And then after I'm done panning the actual pay dirt, I will pan the black sand in case any little flake of gold happened to be caught in that magnetic process. Okay, episode one of something that I know how to do that is fairly unique. And now you can try it too.
If you have questions about it, remember, you can always write to me. Please write to me at theprofessorforever1 at gmail.com. Okay. One more thing I want to talk about today. Well, actually, I just want to read. You know, I love reading. I just really do. And I haven't done it in a while. And I was talking about how I don't like fall. And there was a New Yorker article in their Daily Shouts section, which is satire or just straight up comedy, but most usually ironic satire uh, last year that I thought was hilarious and kind of represents a little of what I feel about fall. So for your listening pleasure, this is Fall Foliage, A Guided Meditation by Colin Nisson. Close your eyes and make yourself comfortable as we begin our fall foliage guided meditation. A journey through the majestic autumnal vistas of New England, from the glorious mountains of Maine and Vermont to the storybook towns and covered bridges of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Take a deep breath as you imagine boarding the foliage tour bus. There are other people on this bus, but don't let them detract from your experience. This is your meditation. Throughout these next 10 minutes, I really need you to remember that. All the window seats are taken. That's fine. There are no bad views on this bus. You choose a seat next to a middle-aged man with a large camera dangling from his neck. Embroidered on his sweatshirt are the words, Grandpa's Little Leaf Peeper, which are confusing, but not something to lose your focus over. You nod hello. He raises his camera and snaps a flurry of photos of your face, then turns away. Again, don't worry about it. You turn your attention across the aisle to an older couple lovingly leaning on each other and giggling at a movie on their iPad. The woman notices you and smiles. She says something, but too softly to hear. You lean toward her, and she repeats herself louder now. Strap in, bitch. We're going to see some fucked up leaves out there today. You nod politely at her, careful to avoid eye contact. Don't ever look into her eyes. You hear the crackle of a microphone turning on. It's your tour guide, Warren, standing at the front of the bus. Warren is a heavyset man who has recently divorced, but it's not something that he wanted. Vermont, Warren shouts. Green Mountain State, here we come. Everyone on the bus cheers. Yay! What are we looking for? Warren asks playfully. Foliage! The passengers shout in unison. And what is foliage? Leaves! They all shout. You you shout. Trees! 
Everyone cranes their necks to see who said trees. A murmur of boos slowly grows louder. Your seatmate turns to you and whispers with urgency, You got it wrong. You wait, red-faced, for the booing to subside. Eventually, the bus pulls off at a lookout point, above a breathtaking crimson canopy of maples and dogwoods. Warren announces that you have 15 minutes to enjoy the view before hitting the road again. Everyone spills out of the bus, snapping photos wildly as they go. Amid the chaos, you're jammed in the doorway between two people, forced to squeeze your way through, landing hard on the asphalt. Trees? Ha, you fucking idiot, a child says as she steps over you. You slowly get up, brush the dirt from your clothes, and walk through the crowd. You pass a father and his adult son sitting on a bench. The son holds a cider donut to his mouth and licks it in a way that doesn't feel altogether human. Sharp, darting licks, dozens of them. He then hands the wet, unbitten donut to his father, who places it into a Ziploc bag with some others. Why? You walk down a small staircase to a secluded spot. Finally alone, you're able to breathe and clear your mind of everything, except the donut licking, which is still there. Moments later, two women from the bus, Barb and Carol, stumble upon your little area. They're British and pleasant in their late 60s. Barb hands you her phone and asks if you will take a photo of them. She calls you love. In order to get the top of the mountains in the frame, you ask them to take one step back, then one more. Barb trips on some loose shale and tumbles into the canyon. Her fall is eerily silent. Why did you ask her to take that extra step? It doesn't matter now. She's dead. You killed Barb, and Carol knows it. But only Carol. Just as she's about to scream, you take Barb's phone and drive it into Carol's temple, then kick her over the edge as if you've done it a million times before. Though you only did what you had to do, you will live with this forever. But right now you're meditating, and the view is magnificent. Dazed, you make your way back toward the bus, but stop when you catch the sound of muffled sobs from behind a bush. It's Warren, staring off into the abyss as he injects himself with something. Maybe he's diabetic, you think. He's not. It's meth. You try to sneak off quietly, but a twig snaps under your foot. Warren's head turns to you, his eyes hot with meth. Planning on telling anyone about this, he asks. About what, you reply, trying to ease his mind. I'm recently divorced, Warren says. It's not something I wanted. He raises his needle to you in a gesture of gratitude. You give him a look as if to imply, thanks, but I don't do meth and turn to walk away, but you can't shake the image of Barb and Carol's faces. Their expressions are haunting. Clearly, you still haven't gotten over murdering them. 
you point to your arm and look at Warren as if to imply, let's get some meth in here. The rush is indescribable. Needless to say, meth plus foliage is really something. Back on the bus, a window seat is opened up. Guess you could say you earned it. You pray that Warren is too high to do a head count and casually kick Barb's Union Jack purse and Carol's Beatles backpack under a seat. Boy, were they British. You walk to the bathroom to splash some cold water on your face in an attempt to get a handle on this high and this meditation. On your way, you pass the older couple from earlier. They're back to giggling and watching their movie. From this angle, you see that it's hardcore porn and that the people in it are them. Back at your seat, you decide to sleep off the meth. Sometime later, you're awoken by the sound of sirens. Your bus pulls over to the side of the road and everyone clambers to the windows. The door opens and two highway patrolmen walk on. A third follows with a woman in tow who is struggling to make her way up the steps. That woman is Barb, bloody and dragging her crushed leg. She reaches the top step, scans the crowd, and points directly at you with what's left of her arm. Hello, love, she manages to say before collapsing. The cops cuff you and then reach into your pocket and find the meth that Warren must have planted there. The last thing you see as the cruiser takes you away is Warren mouthing the words, I'm sorry. And also what looks like, I'm recently divorced. It's not what I wanted. The state police send you back to Vermont to face charges. At your arraignment, your lawyer tells you to expect a minimum sentence of 20 years, plus another 10 for possession. The first year of your sentence in the state penitentiary is rough, to say the least. Your cellmates got word of your crime. They nickname you the Autumn Reaper. And everyone wants a piece of the Autumn Reaper. There isn't a day that goes by that you aren't either defending your life or in the infirmary, recovering from the ceaseless attacks. You aren't eligible for appeal for another several years, but your lawyer negotiates a deal to get you transferred to a different prison. As you ride the bus on the 80-mile journey to your new home for the next 19 years, you look through the window and can't help but notice the fiery sycamores. They're stunning. This concludes part one of your fall foliage-guided meditation. Part two, The Appeal, is available on the app. Thanks for listening. Keep thinking. She's got no lessons planned for me Because she's not that fancy She's a professor forever